Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you now as the speaking God. You spoke and creation came into existence. You spoke words of promise to our father Abraham so many years ago. And we come to you as children of that promise, heirs of the promise, ones who have inherited that great blessing that you promised him. And so, Lord, as we come to these words now, we do ask that you would speak to us, that your will would be done, that you would have your way with us, that we would be comforted and encouraged and blessed in hearing from you this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, the introduction to this particular sermon has evolved a bit through the week um, as uh, the picture in Downing Street kept changing. Um, but, you know, he's, he's gone at long last. Well, he's going, isn't he? He did hang on in there for as long as he could, and it looked like he was going to be really stubborn, but it got to the stage where he could hang on no longer. The scandals that had followed him around for some time finally caught up. It was one thing to have party gate and to appoint someone as a deputy chief whip who he probably shouldn't have, but it was another thing for him to be dishonest about it all, wasn't it? saying that he wasn't aware of any parties in his office and then being pictured at them, saying that he knew nothing about the allegations and then saying, oh, actually, I was told something about that in 2019. But I have to say, there he is, I'm quite surprised that he didn't just order another inquiry because politicians love inquiries and inquests, don't they? Opposition politicians love them because they can jump up and down and call for an inquiry against this corrupt and awful government because they're doing stuff so badly because the opposition always wants to be seen as the, the, the upright, the moral ones who will hold the government to account, even if they wouldn't have done any better themselves. And then people in power love a good inquiry because it gives the impression of being open and transparent, doesn't it? Oh yes, we'll have a full inquiry into that. When all they're really doing is taking the sting out of the situation, kicking the can down the road a little bit because you can hide behind an inquiry. No, I couldn't possibly comment on that while the inquiry's going on. No, I'm not allowed to talk about that. We need to wait for Sue Gray to finish her report before I can answer any questions about that. Even when the police fine you for what you did, well, I'm sorry about that, but we really need to wait for Sue Gray to finish her report in full. And then when it was published, oh, well, you know, I've already apologized for that. I need to get on with running the country. I have a mandate. I need to get on with things. It's a great trick. Just have an inquiry. And then suddenly the news is about the inquiry and not so much about the events itself. Then, of course, you accept the findings of the inquiry, you promise to implement the findings, or my personal favourite, you say that we've already made changes to our structure to ensure that this never happens again. But basically all that means is you're putting the inquiry in the bin. But I wonder if this evening we could conduct something of an inquiry into the events in the, in the ancient Near East 2,000 years before Jesus was born, where Abram and his wife Sarai faced a famine and travelled to Egypt. I think it's fair to say in the Bible that Abram is a leader. I think it's fair to say he didn't get this one quite right. But hopefully our inquiry won't be something to hide behind or something that ends in me standing outside on the front steps announcing my resignation as assistant minister of Ravenhill, though if it does happen, I will stay until you appoint a replacement. But hopefully this is something which is genuinely useful to us because all of us in walking with the Lord 
We don't always get it right when things are tough. So hopefully with a little bit more honesty and humility than some, this will be useful for us. The only evidence we have to go on is what we read in Genesis 12, not a lot else. But thankfully, the Bible is always open and honest about the so-called heroes of our faith, even when they don't quite measure up. But before we get into the details, there are two issues I think that we need to address. There are two elephants in the room um, in this particular passage of Scripture. And the first issue is Sarai's age, and Abram's too, for that matter. Because if we piece together the evidence, last week in verse 4 of chapter 12, we read that Abram was 75 years old. We're kind of assuming that not too much time has passed since then. And then later in Genesis chapter 17, we're told when Abraham is 99 years old, that Sarah is 90. So when they're going to Egypt, if Abram is still 75, Sarah must be in her mid-60s. Now, for us in the 21st century, it poses a few problems for us. Because first of all, well, how come they were so old? I mean, Sarah lives to the grand old age of 127, but she's only a youngster compared to Abram, who dies when he's 175. Their son Isaac only comes along when Sarah is in her 90s. And it's a particular issue at this part of the story because Abram is afraid that Pharaoh will see that Sarah is a very beautiful woman and will kill him so that he can take her for himself. Now, I wouldn't possibly say, I wouldn't dare to say that a woman in her mid-60s may not be very beautiful and may not be described as beautiful. Of course you could. But would you really be afraid that Pharaoh, who can presumably have any woman that he wants, would kill you so that he could take your wife who's in her mid-60s? I don't think Pharaoh needed the free bus pass. What's going on here? Well, I suppose there are a few fundamentals we need to put in place before we can address the Pharaoh problem. I think the first thing we need to realize is that when human beings were created, they were created to live forever. They were created in a world with no sin. It was God's intention that they would live forever. When Adam and Eve disobey God, he specifically says as he puts them out of the garden that man must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So in theory, Adam and Eve could have lived forever if God hadn't banished them. And then in Genesis 5, as you see Adam's family tree, you see several of those first generations living eight, nine hundred years. And then we see God make a pronouncement in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 3. He says, My spirit will not abide in man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. So quite a dramatic shortening from 900. And then as you follow the generations through the book of Genesis, you see it decline gradually. It's not instant. It doesn't happen straight away. Noah lives 950 years, but his son Shem only lives 500. And last week we read that Abram's father, Terah, lived a mere 205 years. So it's going that way. It's decreasing all the time in line with what God said. We actually have some writings um, from ancient Egypt that were from about this time which say that they thought the ideal life length was 110 years. Anything younger than 110, you've died before your time. But any longer than that, oh well, you know, you're probably going to have some health problems. Life wasn't pleasant anymore. It seems from the records that many people did 
live about that length of time. I suppose even today, not that many people make it into three figures, but some do, and some make it several years in. Uh, my granda tells me that his uncle lived to the ripe old age of 113, so I'm told, working on the farm, carrying 100 weight of spuds in from the fields, no bother, right up to his last day, so I'm told. That's about 45 kilos for those of us who are a bit younger. My grand is 94, and he tells me that he's not going anywhere anytime soon, and hopefully he's right. So when we look through that lens, I don't think the AIDS thing is a huge, huge problem. But you still might wonder about Sarah being so beautiful in her mid-60s. Well, I think the explanation for that um, is that people aged much more slowly at that time. Again, it's a result of being closer to the Garden of Eden, being closer to the fall, and it makes sense. If I live to 100, I'll probably be quite decrepit. If I live to 200, I'll be shriveled up like an autumn leaf. If I lived to 900, I would dread to think what I would look like. But these people, although their childhood seems to be very similar to ourselves, the aging process is much slower. So a 66-year-old Sarah might well have had the body of a modern-day 28-year-old, something like that. The other elephant in the room, though, is that Abram and Sarah are half-siblings. Not only in this reading does Abram tell Sarai to say that she is his sister, to kind of trick Pharaoh, but later in chapter 20, verse 12, Abram says, Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. Abram thinks that's a, that's a good justification for what he did. Later on in the Bible, in Leviticus 18, God specifically forbids this kind of relationship. Uh, today, we know the dangers of sort of DNA defects and that sort of thing that can be passed on if partners are related too closely. The Bible doesn't explain this for us, but a very common theory in the commentators is, again, like the age thing, this was early enough on in the history of humanity, there were no DNA defects worth speaking about since Adam and Eve didn't have any, so there was nothing to worry about there. But at the end of the day, we think this is really weird. But it seems like people in those days didn't. They just thought it was more normal. And whilst that might puzzle us, that's how it was. So those are hopefully the elephants in the room dealt with. What about the story? This was undoubtedly a really tough time for Abram and Sarai. Whatever we might think about Abram's actions, which we will look at, I think we do have to acknowledge that times were really hard. There was famine. We've never lived in anything like famine. We can't imagine it. But Abram and Sarai and their family had no food. And the place Abram decides to go, Egypt, is a dangerous place for him to go. Abram thinks that Sarai will be noticed and desired by Pharaoh. And he's right about that. And it might well be that if he had been honest that, yes, this is my wife, that his life really would have been in danger. As a foreigner in that land, he would have had next to no rights. So this is a tough time. And that's why tonight I want us, as we investigate these events together, I want us to look at them through this lens of trusting God in tough times. Trusting God in tough times. And we're going to see three phases to this. We'll see the departure, the ruse, and the return. So firstly, the departure. Look with me again at verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. 
And at first reading, that seems, well, fair enough. There was a famine. He went, there was no food. He went to a country where there was food. Happy days. But the language used in Genesis 12, at least in the original language, gives us an indication that there's, there's something not quite right here. That Abram's not just wandering off to Egypt, but that he's actually wandering away from the Lord. Josh highlighted for us last week that the very first word God says to Abram in the ESV is go. In the NIV, it's leave. And in the King James Version, it's get thee out. And the reason why there's such a spread there, um, even on something so simple, is that because the Hebrew word behind that is not the word that we would expect. The word is halak, which just simply means to walk. We would expect another word, which would mean maybe to go out or to leave, and that's why the NIV and the King James translate it that way, but it's not the word we get. And it's significant because not only is it the verb that God uses in verse 1, it's then the verb that Abram does in verse 4 when he actually leaves. The same word, a word that stands out, the NIV translates it as leave, that's fair enough, that's good English. That, that, that's a word that we, we wouldn't expect to see in the Hebrew. But then when we come to verse 10, which we read this evening, now there was a famine in the lad, and Abram went down to Egypt. And the word there is a different word. He's no longer walking in that, that word that stands out, that word that, that sticks out as, here, Abram's obeying God. He's going it to the letter, even when the instruction seems a little bit strange. No, it's a different word, the word to go down. It is the word you'd expect in Hebrew. It's, it's the human word, if you like but it's not the word that came earlier when Abram obeyed. This time, the Lord hasn't sent Abram. This time, Abram hasn't asked the Lord what he should do as he does at other points in the story. This time, he just does his own thing. And Genesis here very cleverly but subtly tells us that Abram is acting on his own. Go to this land, Abram. He does that. But it's full of Canaanites, so at the first sign of trouble, he abandons the route he has been taking, and instead he heads to Egypt. Now you might say to me, John, that's a bit harsh. The man was hungry. Give him a break. Surely, if he couldn't use his intuition and to know where to go, where there was food, then you know, can we do anything without asking God first? That's silly. And yes, that would be silly. The, the Bible isn't saying to us tonight that we can't just use our brain cells sometimes. We, we can, God has given them to us. Uh, I have a friend who runs a, a Christian charity and every now and then um, they maybe have an unexpected cost that comes out of the blue, you know, like Billy Swan saying that the boiler blew up unexpectedly, so something like that happens and the cash flow isn't quite there to cover it and they suddenly find themselves in a financial crisis. It happens every now and then. I'm amazed how calm he is about it when he talks about it. But my friend tells me that the people who he works with are very sincere Christian people, and the first thing every time, the first thing they suggest doing is to have a prayer meeting about it. And my friend Paul says that every time he goes to the prayer meeting, but before he goes to the prayer meeting, he sends out an email to all his main supporters asking them for some money. Because God gives us brains, he gives us resources, it's fine to use those things that he's given us. But that's not what Abram was doing. Yes, he was hungry, and yes, it was tough. But this is different because he's actually disobeying. The different verbs show us that, but even more clearly is the fact that God tells Abram in verse 1 to go to the land that he will show him. But instead here, Abram goes his own way. 
Abram's obedience, which Josh expounded to us last week, well, unfortunately, it was quite short-lived. Abram deserted what God was saying to him. And so I suppose for us tonight, I want to say that if you're going through a tough time or facing a situation where you don't know what to do, the call is to not depart from what God says to you through talking to God, which Abram doesn't do, or through hearing from him through the scriptures, possibly also through other Christians. We need to recenter our focus on God rather than on the situation around us. I have to say, so often for me personally, when I face something that's difficult, when I'm really worried about something, and I am a worrier, when I'm not sure how things are going to turn out, you know, it's something I find really tough because I'm a planner. I find that time and time again, as I read the scriptures, it's simply enough to remember, and the scriptures do remind us that God is God and that he's in control. That it's simply our job to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and everything else falls into place. And when I see that, when I'm reminded of that, the things that I find tough, they do fade. They don't disappear, but they do fade. As an old song says, they grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. A few weeks ago, I was chatting to Marty out there after the service, and I was talking to him about something that I was quite concerned about at the time. And Marty, my very wise supervising minister, said to me, John, you know who's in control, don't you? And I said, yes, I do, but I would still like to do this thing. And Marty said, well, don't worry about it then. God's still in control. Sometimes that's all we need to be reminded of. It's simple, but it's right. We're going to sing a song later which has the words, when beyond our understanding, you're teaching us to trust where is he teaching you to trust right now? What are you worried about? What's tough for you right now? It's not wrong to use your intuition, but don't depart from God. Abram was taught to trust the hard way because he did go his own way and he ended up coming back from Egypt to where he was meant to be. I can't tell you how the Lord would have provided for him if he'd stayed where he was, but I know he would have. Where do you need to trust the Lord tonight. So in trusting God in hard times, we've had the departure. Next we have the ruse, the lies. As he was about to enter Egypt, verses 11 to 13, as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. Now, there are some commentators here who want to hold Abram up as a, as a hero, you know, to say that he was completely justified in what he was doing here. You know, he, he might have been killed. He was right. The Egyptians did notice Sarai. Abram would have had no rights as a foreigner. He would have been killed. He was spared because of this ruse. And it really wasn't a lie, you know. She really was his half-sister. But I don't buy that as I read it. I think we can tell by what the Lord does in response when he sends great plagues. But even look at Abram's language in verse 13. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. He's thinking about himself. He's not thinking about poor Sarah. It's completely self-interested. It's not prayer to the Lord to protect. He's already departed from the Lord's way. And now he departs from the Lord's way in a completely different way in that he uses deceit. It's a self-centered 
despicable thing he does to his wife here. I mean, take a moment and put yourself in her shoes. It just doesn't bear thinking about. One sin has led to another. He departed from God's plan. He he disobeyed in terms of the direction he was traveling. Then he has to lie to try and save his own skin. Stepping out on our own is disastrous. It's disastrous. So often we do it, though, we say, oh, oh, it's just this once. Oh, I'll just have a look. I'll just go out this once with these people. I'll only have one drink with them. I'll only have a look at this online out of curiosity. Whatever it is, and before we know it, we're knee-deep in sin. Half-truths don't do for the Lord. In fact, there's no such thing. Look at the the woman at the well in John 4, well-known story. Oh, she says, "I, I have no husband. Jesus says, yes, you're right. You've had three and the man you're with now isn't your husband. Only the truth will do. By contrast, look at Jesus, the way, the truth, the life. Sometimes he stayed silent when he was falsely accused, but he was always honest. No deceit was found in his mouth, as the prophet had said, even when it would cost him his life. Are you ever tempted by a wee half-truth? We all are, let's face it. Something that helps you get ahead. Maybe an exaggeration on a CV or you you leave something out that doesn't look so good. Paying someone in cash, not asking questions because, you know, if we don't know that they're avoiding tax, well, we're innocent, right? It's their sin. That happened to me recently and I I thought afterwards, you know, I don't know that he's evading tax so I'm not going to, you know, run off to the police or anything but maybe I should have asked the question. Even if it had ended up in me paying more, because I'm sure he would have thought I was mad. But that might have been an opportunity to talk about why I did that, to talk about Jesus. The Lord's not pleased with Abram's half-truth, which, let's face it, is actually just dishonesty. It's not a half-truth at all. And so he inflicts serious diseases on Pharaoh in verse 17. The way of the Lord is honesty. So in our inquiry so far, well, we've seen plenty of feelings. The departure, the ruse, one sin leading to another. Abram departing from the Lord's plan, then coming up with this deception, which only brought trouble on his wife and on Pharaoh. But then thirdly and wonderfully, we see his return. This is why I read on into chapter 13 tonight. Verse 1, so Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had and Lot went with him. You might notice again that the, the, the Hebrew's quite clever here. When he went down to Egypt, he comes back up to the Negev. It's, it's the opposite. He does a complete about turn. He goes back to the place he started out back in verse 9, the Negev, or, or some translations just say the south. He returns to the place where Yahweh had brought him in the first place. And he returns to the Lord In verse 4 of chapter 13, Abram calls on the name of the Lord. Two pieces of good news here for us in this return for when we're in tough times. Even when we don't get it quite right, the way back is always open. And the Lord uses our disappointments and our failures. Even when we don't get it quite right, the way back is open. And he uses our disappointments and failures. The way back for Abram was wide open Really, this incident had no impact on God's grand plan for Abram's life, on on his promise to bless Abram. The Lord saved Sarai from Pharaoh's household, 
He got Abram back on track to where he needed to be. It wasn't that he wouldn't face anything tough again. It wasn't that he wouldn't ever need reminded of this again. If you know the story, you know Abram repeats this sin later on. But the way back to the Lord was wide open. It might be a bit of a a cliche, but it's true. Sometimes we don't realize that we have the Lord or what we have in the Lord until the Lord is all we have. Abram went out on his own and it led to disaster and drove him back to the Lord. And the Lord would use this failure in Abram's life. When famine came, Abram didn't trust the Lord. But Abraham, as he would later be, would famously trust the Lord enough to put his own son on the altar. The Lord was teaching him to trust. So what can we conclude from this inquiry? If we were Sue Gray, what would our findings be? Well, I think if we're being honest, some of the findings aren't great. But if we're really being honest, we see that the Apostle James was right when he said that Abram was a man just like us. We're just like him. When tough times come our way, sometimes we try to do our own thing rather than to trust. Sometimes we run away from the word and prayer. We we, we leave the way of the Lord. And ultimately, like Abram, that leads us to sin. But praise be to God because the way back for us is always open. It was Abram's faith in the promised Messiah that would ultimately save him. And for us, looking to the Messiah, Jesus, the door is open for us too. Maybe you need to take that opportunity tonight to to repent, to trust him in your own tough time, to recenter yourself, to face your battles, whatever they might be, with the right perspective. But as we finish tonight, I also want you to be encouraged because even if you've been hurt, even if your great enemy, the devil, has meant your trial for evil, the Lord will use it for our good. He will work through it. He will teach us. He will teach us to trust and he will draw us back to himself. The way is always open. He'll draw us closer to himself and he'll never abandon us even when we wander from him. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we give you thanks that you are an always gracious God, an always loving, always blessing, always kind God. Lord, thank you that despite our sin, you loved us and sent Jesus into the world so that we could come back to you. And so, Lord, we come before you with all our disappointments and failures. We come before you with the tough things that maybe some of us are facing in life right now. And we simply lay them at your feet and ask that you would lead us in the right way in facing them. We ask that when we turn to you in the word and prayer, that we would find you. We ask that as we come to church and hear from your word and maybe even speak to our brothers and sisters in Christ, that again there we would find you and be kept on the narrow pathway which leads to eternal life. So Lord, help us in whatever we're facing just now. Help us to come to you. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus for his sake. Amen.